the first conversation we had is if we if Mia was to take this pilot to the powers that be out in Los Angeles and sell it, she probably could. Somebody would probably pick it up because it's very good. It's very funny. But it would get picked up. It would get changed. It would be out of her hands. It would get turned into something else. It would, you know, it wouldn't. She would lose all creative control, and it definitely wouldn't be a Chicago thing. Um, no. So we decided definitely. what we wanted to do was to find a way to shoot it here. Hi, I'm Sean Douglas, and welcome to the first episode of The Plot. Since this is the very beginning, I'm going to take a moment to introduce myself and explain what this show is about. So, I'm Sean, and I work in theater, and like a lot of theater artists, I've worn several different hats over the years. I'm a playwright, an arts journalist, and I've also worked for a variety of Chicago-area theater companies as a script reader and dramaturg, which is someone who, among other things, researches, and consults on the development of new plays. I've written a lot of essays and recorded a lot of podcasts over the years, mostly for the Clyde Fitch Report, where I was a former managing editor, but my articles or bits of commentary have popped up in various industry or mainstream outlets over the years. Now I've decided to take a step back from writing about theater to focus more on writing my own plays, as well as creating this, a new self-produced show called The Plot. The Plot is a show about writing and writers, and it'll explore various subjects based on that general theme. My co-host and I might analyze particular works we're interested in, interview writers on their latest projects, or try other activities, all related to the words, craft, and ideas that go into telling a good story. If this sounds a bit technical or dry, no worries. While I'll try to prioritize work that has more of a literary or social bent to it, the goal here is to have accessible, informal talks that anyone can get something out of. Sure, we'll discuss literature and theater, as I am a theater person at heart, but we'll also cover movies, TV, and even video games, as all are places where you can find great writing these days. So whether you're a literary buff, a writer yourself, or just someone who wants to think deeper about the things you read, watch, and play, this show is for you. For this first episode, we'll have two segments. In part one, I'll interview playwright Mia McCullough and actress Elizabeth Laidlaw on their new web series, The Haven. In part two, my co-host Lauren McCrimmon hops on to join me for a conversation on science fiction, where we'll unpack Ted Chang's new short story collection, Exhalation. So let's get started. Mia McCullough is a Chicago-based playwright, screenwriter, and filmmaker whose work has been produced across the country, as well as in London and Edinburgh. She taught playwriting and screenwriting at Northwestern University for 10 years, and is the author of the book Transforming Reality, Overcoming the Difficulties and Dilemmas of Creative Writing. She is the creator and co-producer of The Haven, a new web series set at a domestic violence shelter. The show describes itself as, quote, the underpaid staff of a domestic violence shelter grapples with the messiness of their personal lives while trying to help their clients embark on abuse-free futures. The show stars actress and co-producer Elizabeth Laidlaw, a veteran of Chicago theater and star on the recent CBS drama The Red Line. Me and Elizabeth joined me by phone to discuss the creation of The Haven, and what the future holds for this smart new Chicago-based series, currently streaming on OTV Open Television. Hi, Mia and Elizabeth. How are you? Hey, we're good, Sean. How are you? I'm all right. Hi, Sean. How are you? We're good. 
Do you want to just identify each of yourself with your voices, too, so people know which one is which when you're talking? This is Mia, and this is Elizabeth. Okay, great. And congratulations. I know this has been several years uh, in the making now. So how did this come to be? Uh, well, I'll take this first part. I will take the first part. Yeah, I uh, was working at a domestic violence shelter uh, starting in 1999, and it was not very long. I was uh, working on the crisis line, which was also in the shelter itself, and I realized fairly quickly that it was a great vehicle for a one-hour drama, and uh, it, there were just, it was just a, an environment that people don't know and don't see, and it's full of conflict and humor and joy, which I think people don't expect. And I was like, wow, this would be such a great vehicle. But because no shows were being done that were primarily about women at the time, and certainly not shows that featured lots of women of color, I just was like, this is not going to happen anytime soon. Uh, and then when Orange is the New Black came out, I was like, oh, well, maybe now's the time for this. And in 2009, uh, Elizabeth did a production of my play, the world premiere production of Lucinda's Bed. And afterwards, we're like, we need to work together again. We need to do mm -hmm. some film project because we've been so frustrated with the lack of television and film happening in Chicago and wanting to move that here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and my, you know, there have been obviously a number of, of television shows shot here in Chicago, but for the most part, they are not really Chicago productions in any sense. Um, you know, Boss and, and Playboy Club and Empire and the, sh and the Dick Wolf shows, mo most of the, uh, all of the series regulars and most of the guest cast and a lot of the recurring even are cast out of town. And then, you know, the, the left small parts are kind of left to the Chicago actors I'd experienced that, you know, in the, in the business. And then, so one of the things that we talked about when Mia brought me this script, she brought it as a one hour pilot and she's like, do you think we could, how could, how could something like this get made, but here in Chicago? Cause really the emphasis for her and for me was that we shoot a show about a Chicago domestic violence shelter in Chicago, using Chicago talent and using a demographic that looks like Chicago. So, you know, and it was like, well, that's that's going to be really hard to do because there's such a conceit about producing things in Los Angeles. And as we sort of went on back and forth about this conversation, we kind of noted that oh, more and more web series were not only getting made, but they were getting seen and they were having some mm -hmm. traction. And they were even sometimes even at the time, I think we were pretty it was pretty close to uh, high maintenance getting picked up by HBO um, yeah, when we sort of said and broad saying, city like, too. Yeah, broad city, and we thought so. Rather than shoot, try to. The first conversation we had is if we, if Mia was to take this pilot to the powers that be out in Los Angeles and sell it, she probably could. Somebody would probably pick it up because it's very good. It's very funny, but it would get picked up. It would get changed. It would be out of her hands. It would get turned into something else. It would, you know, wouldn't she would lose all creative control, and it definitely wouldn't be a Chicago thing. Um, no. So we decided no. what we wanted to do was to find a way to shoot it um, here, and we ultimately came to the decision that the best way to do that would be to break it up into a web series. So it's 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 broader, and you know the, the original source material of the pilot was expanded and broken apart into four episodes, 
and uh, and then we were able to raise money for each episode sort of individually and shoot the episodes individually, which is a little bit, in some ways, less of a monolithic task than trying to shoot an entire but that way we have, like, the finished thing. So that was kind yeah, of... Yeah, because we, we would have had to raise about $60,000 from the beginning to shoot it all at once. And this way, we shot the least expensive episode first with the fewest number of actors and, you know, and then built from there and used that first episode to raise money for more episodes and finally pulled off the last two last about a year ago. We shot those last two. So... Yeah. Sort of the evolution of it, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I would say also that the um, the the directors. I, I I'm assuming I don't actually know because I've not been on the set of these shows, but that the DPs and the directors for all the commercial shows in Chicago are also not local people. And yeah, we were interested in, and we were interested in cultivating that talent and getting. Um, women and women of color behind the camera to tell these stories that are predominantly about women. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, something I would want the audience to know is that this is very much a complete thing. Like, it's something that could be and hopefully will be turned into something much bigger. But I think sometimes when people hear web series, they aren't quite sure what that means. It can kind of, there's sort of a range of professionalism involved with that. Um, but this is yeah. a very like professional, complete thing. It's just shorter than a regular TV series would be. Um, yeah. It very much has the potential yeah. um, and certainly could be turned into something much bigger if someone wanted to and had the budget to do that and everything that would entail. Yeah, I tried yeah. to introduce a lot of characters that the audience would want to know more about, but also tell uh, a full arc story about each of the people that we saw. So we got a really good picture of at least four people and then a sampling of a lot of other people who hopefully when the audience watches, they want to know more about those characters and want to see further episodes about them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what is something um, as audience members that we can do now to support the show? Uh, Watch it. (laughs) Watch it, watch it, watch it, tweet about it. Um, Instagram about it. Um, there's so many wonderful, talented people, both in front of and behind the camera, associated with it. Um, that you know, and each episode, you know, they're, they're they're short, digestible little chunks. I mean, each episode is between ten and fifteen minutes long. You can watch all four of them in the time it takes to slog your way through an episode of Game of Thrones. So, um, <laughs> and still have time for something else, you know. And it has a more satisfying um, yeah, ending. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I haven't, I am actually, I, because of the week that I'm having, I have not yet watched the ending of Game of Thrones. Uh, based on what I've seen, and this is my personal opinion, you can take it or leave it. Based on what I've seen, I don't feel like I'm in a big rush. Like, I think I can watch it eventually. <laughs> I actually don't follow Game of Thrones, so I don't really have yeah. a horse in the race one way or the other. But yeah. No, I'm, yeah. I'm, I, the last few episodes, I was like, oh, okay, so this is kind of limping across the finish line. That's fine. <laughs> uh, so so yeah, they can watch I The Haven instead. I haven't either, but I've definitely not seen, uh, I've, not, I've not seen any, like, great excitement about it. So hopefully yeah. when people watch The Haven, they at least feel uh, satisfied. <laughs> satisfied by the storytelling, but, you're, you know, hoping for more. And, yes, mm-hmm. yeah. people can share it on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. 
uh, and tell their friends, uh, tell people who are interested in stories about women, interested in stories about people of color, interested in things that are funny and dark at the same time. That th- Those are the, the folks that I would love to rope in and get an audience for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, you know, with, you know, I'm going to have some opportunities to have conversations with people who are a little bit higher up in the studio systems in the world, you know, in, in our world, um, hopefully this summer to try to get some more attention. So obviously if people are watching it and tweeting about it and Instagramming about it and we're handing these proposals off to people with a little bit more money and, and the wherewithal to, to make this into something and they see that it's got a presence, they'll, they'll, they'll look. I mean, that's, that's the reality of our world right now is that, you know, mm-hmm. social Who's social getting the media, most attention? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm has a big so that's a big deal so just people can watch it and tweet about it and share their experience of watching it that that would do a huge amount for us um yeah so and hashtagging with the importance that this is this is really a homegrown production every single person involved in this production was chicago based um both the the crew and the cast um and they're all fantastic performers i mean we had such oh a my God, they are yeah. The toughest part about making this show, honestly, in terms of casting it, was choosing among, you know, we, we had such an embarrassment of riches in terms yeah, of the performers. Like, every single person who we looked at for any role was so good. It got, I remember me and I having a conversation of saying it would be so great if we could, like, get some money behind this and do a full-blown series and introduce all of these you know, interesting, funny characters that Mia was coming up with and all these crazy, all the crazy potential that a place like a shelter has in terms of different types of stories, in terms of different uh, scenarios. You know, Mia's got all of these experiences in her in her head of having worked there and all this imagination on how to, to create it. And it just opened up the possibility. It's like, oh, you know, if we wrote, this, then we could cast that person. You know what I mean? Like we were just mm-hmm. thinking about all the different ways we could utilize all of this talent that just kept coming across the, the threshold. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, there are so many great Chicago actors in this. I was surprised at how many I recognized yeah. too. That's like, oh, it's that guy, and oh, it's him, and oh, I know that person. Yeah. Yeah. So for people yeah. who know the yeah, Chicago sure. theater world um, and the film world, they'll they'll recognize people. Yeah, uh, for sure. And I mean, you know, that was the great, I think that's a great advantage that Mia and I have, having both been in this business for a long time and having made a lot of good friendships and connections and built up a lot of trust and confidence in our work that we were able to make phone calls to extremely talented people who, you know, are very You're just unsure. Yeah. yeah, and they're like, you know, I'm like, would you mind hanging out with us for an entire weekend, 12 hours a day, and <laughs> like doing this thing for no money? Is that cool? Are you all right with that? And, you know, because me and, and I are not a, Yeah, and because it's not a long series, it's not like most people did not have a lot of screen time. Um, and yet I tried to give them something, everybody something meaty to do. Uh, one of uh, one of our challenges was just getting all the people in the room at the same time because, you know, we're oh not offering a lot of money. And I had to rewrite a scene because I couldn't get everybody in the room at the same time. And that was sad because I had to cut somebody out of a scene occasionally. We had, because we shot over the a year and a 
half. Um, uh-huh. th- like people's hair changed. I had to write a whole thing <laughs> about people getting their hair changed and braided and yeah. dyed because no one's hair was the same as it was in the next episode, which had already been shot. So that was a little insane. But, you know, I mean, yeah. that's just how it goes. I mean, I, we were really yeah. lucky that our, our 14-year-old boy didn't grow too much in the Oh, my God, that was a legitimate fear. We were looking at this kid <laughs> as we were shooting episode one, and I'm like, oh, man, he is on the cusp of puberty, and he's going to be a big dude when it happens. And, like, we caught him, like, like – Seconds before full puberty hit, you know, I mean, it was just, it was very funny. His experiences you are know, just aging him so that. much. Just everything he's going through. Oh, yeah. <laughs> exactly. They've made him grow five inches. Yeah, I know. Well, this morning. The point, of, the point of, like, his, his re-entry to the series, you know, which is supposed to be, in the scope of the series, is supposed to be less than 24 hours. But, you know, the time between is a year and a half. He's, his mother brings him into the shelter because he's afraid to stay at home. You know, he feels like he's in, he's not safe at home. And there's this kid, like, getting bigger and bigger. <laughs> you know, like, um, we we you know. were lucky that, yeah, he did not have a major yeah. growth spurt. <laughs> yes, we were, we were, we were, we were very close, but uh, he was a great kid. He was, not, I was just re-watching. Yeah, I was just rewatching the first episode, and I where we were watching it premiere the other day, and he does this little bit where he like kind of lets his oatmeal slop back into his bowl, and I just thought that was really funny. Like, it really cracked me up. <laughs> I know it may be only Elizabeth and I that thought it was hilarious, but we enjoyed that. Yeah, we. He's a good yeah, actor. you and I tended to laugh really loud at moments that kind of went over everybody else's heads, but you know that's us. <laughs> yeah, we have a very dark sense of humor. No, he's a good actor. Me at one point was like, is that okay? Should we cut this out of the, the trailer? You know, this this line out of the trailer? I'm like, no, it's hilarious. She's like, yeah, but Elizabeth, we're not like other people. <laughs> <laughs> but we left it in there. We're like, yeah, if they we don't like it, it they're probably it not going to like the series. Yeah. yeah. Leave it in. Leave it in. <laughs> and then ultimately, what do you hope people take away from The Haven? You see it. Well, I, I guess I would like several things. I would like people to um, have a a better idea of of what domestic violence looks like and how many different scenarios and flavors it comes in. Um, I I, I also, and I don't know that I, I went into the series thinking about this, but when we had a panel discussion, a little over a year ago, um, I had a panel discussion at a screening of one of the episodes, and there were four survivors of domestic violence there. And one of them was talking about how it really hadn't occurred to her to leave until she had seen an episode of, I don't know, maybe Scandal or something. I don't quite remember where she had seen somebody leave their abuser. And it just, it, one of the things that came up in that discussion is how terrible the modeling is on TV, how little there is of people leaving their abusers and how unrealistic it tends to be when they do portray it. It's like the violence is usually sexualized in a way that, you know, Elizabeth and I were like, okay, we don't need to show women getting beaten up on our show. We don't need to see anybody getting beaten up on our show most of the time. Like that is not going to be the primary focus of what's happening. It's going to be about how people heal, how people move on, how people survive and um, and how they get away to a certain degree. And I think that that, I, I, because when people hear, oh, it's 
a, a show about domestic violence. It's not really. It's a show about people moving on from domestic violence, hopefully. Yeah. And, I mean, for me, you know, ditto all of that. But also, I would, you know, I have my own reasons of wanting to, you know, I love, I want, I want more women working. I want more women performers in front of the camera. I want more stories out there that focus on the experiences of women and femme-bodied people and um, people of color. It is going to be a long time to that, before that pendulum swings too far mm-hmm. in that direction. Yeah. You know, we have a long, we have a long history of television to make up for where, where people who are in our show were the background characters or the sidekicks at best or the love mm-hmm. interest. So I have a personal vested interest in it. And any opportunity to tell stories about people who are not white men, not we, and we have, we have a couple of white men in our show and we love them and they're great, fantastic guys, but they are not the focal point in this story. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so that's, for me as a storyteller and kind of, you know, as an artist, so that's the kind of stuff I'm really interested in having out there. And then another layer of that is I really want to show the world that Chicago filmmaking, Chicago television, Chicago artists are not, you know, we're not day players. We're, we're right. serious artists. We have the skill set. We have the, we have the depth and the range and a different sort of life. I mean, it's a different kind of person who lives in Chicago and that's not a, it's not a judgment call, you know, it's just there's the people, the kind of people who choose to live in Chicago are a little different and bring a different kind of storytelling to the, to the table. And um, mm-hmm. so for me, those are my, along with what Mia said, those are my priorities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree. You know, I hope that people see it, you know, if nothing else, people watch it um, and say, wow, these are some amazing actors. We've never put them on one of our shows that we shoot in Chicago, and oh, maybe we should do that. Maybe we don't have to fly all these people in from Los Angeles to do these parts, and we could actually just use people who are there. And so I, I hope that it, it makes that difference. I, I would my my big dream, um, the pipe dream, is that if it gets picked up, that we get to have a writers' room in Chicago, which is something that's never happened, to my knowledge. And I think there's literally no reason why it shouldn't happen. And so many of the people who are writing for television now have come out of Chicago and then had to move to L.A. or New York to make a living. And that's a little crazy to me. There's no reason why it has to happen um, in one of two places. So I'm hoping that we can sort of shift that paradigm a little bit so that Chicago becomes a more lucrative place for artists to live. Mm-hmm. regardless of what they do. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for agreeing to be in the show today and for making your show. If people want to find thank The you. Haven online or tweet at you or follow you on Facebook or anywhere else, uh, where should they go? We are on Twitter uh, and... Go ahead, Elizabeth. No, yeah, Twitter and Instagram is The, um, the Haven Web. Um, the Haven Web, all one thing, no, no extra punctuation or anything and yeah and on facebook it's the haven dash web series and web series is two words but if you type in the haven dash it usually will pop up at that point but the haven dash web series and you can find us and follow us there yeah and also our our, just our straight up web series is it's the havenweb.com is our website the havenweb.com 
and you can see our our web series there, or you can see it on OTV, which also has a lot of other amazing uh, intersectional content to yeah. watch besides our shows. We're we're really honored to have Open TV pick us up um, and include us in their programming because their focus is also about making sure that um, underrepresented uh, artists television artists and video artists and content creators are are being seen. So there's a ton of fantastic content from Chicago-based and Midwest-based creators um, who are just coming up with some really innovative, cool stuff, most of them doing it on a shoestring budget, which I am of the personal opinion always helps to foster some great creativity. Um, so there's, yeah, there's a ton of fantastic content on there, and we're really honored to be among them. Yes. Absolutely. And they are they are at weareotv.com. That's their their handle. Yes, w e a r e t o dot tv. Yes. All right. Awesome. Well, I will be sure to include those links in the description for this episode. Uh, thanks Great. again for being on the show, and good luck with everything. I hope this can find a future. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you so, so well much, Sean. You too. What are your favorite science fiction stories? When is the genre at its best, or worst? And what makes navigating the social and political potential of science fiction unique compared to other genres? For this next segment, I'll dig into these questions with my good friend and co-host Lauren McCrimmon. Lauren is a former English teacher who's taught English at various levels in various countries around the world, and is recently back from teaching high school English in South Korea. With her encyclopedic literary and worldly knowledge, I couldn't ask for a better person to join me as a co-pilot for this show. We'll also take a look at the new short story collection, Exhalation, from renowned science fiction author Ted Chang, and consider the place of our fleeting, ephemeral lives in a vast universe. I will note that this interview was my first stab at recording a podcast over Skype, normally I do them in person or by phone, and while the sound quality was predictably not quite at the level I try to normally work at, this will be fixed for future episodes and it shouldn't affect your ability to follow and enjoy the conversation. So with that said, let's talk about science fiction. Hi, Lauren. How are you? Great, Sean. Thanks for having me. How are you doing? I am doing all right. Now, for the core conversation in this episode, I thought we could talk about science fiction, uh, specifically Exhalation by Ted Chang, which is a new short story collection out by a very well-known science fiction author. For readers who don't know his other work, you might be familiar with the movie Arrival, which was based on one of his short stories. And so he has a new collection out that we've both read at least some of, and we wanted to take a moment to talk about science fiction in general, and then zoom in on one or two stories from Exhalation we could really pick apart in interesting ways. That sounds great. So one question I had, which I've presented to you before, is that we're talking about science fiction, and yet I kind of feel like I don't know how much of a science fiction person I really am where I can think of plenty of things that are science fiction that I've very much enjoyed. Um, Arrival is one example. Um, I've enjoyed like Annihilation and Interstellar and plenty of science fiction video games and other stories, Metroid or Mass Effect. There are plenty of things that I can think of, even like Star Wars or something. I don't know that I'm a big Star Wars fan, but I've certainly enjoyed it. And yet, despite all this, I don't know that I would say that I am a science fiction fan, in quotation marks, and I'm trying to figure out why that might be. So you say you're not a science fiction fan. Mm -hmm. So 
what is a science fiction fan? I think that is part of what my question is. Okay. And is it that I think that some science fiction can be very deep and have a lot of social commentary to it, and that's the kind that I like. And then there's other kinds that are just a little bit more like, let's go on a space adventure, where I think, okay, that's fun, but I don't know that it's something I'm I'm inherently drawn to unless it's done particularly well. And maybe I feel like a science fiction fan is someone who's automatically interested in the genre, regardless of like how good it is. Mm-hmm. And then maybe I'm also being overly stereotypical and thinking about some of the more kind of toxic sci-fi culture and how for some reason in that genre, you get a lot more of the cranky white men who are like, we don't want women writing about this or we don't want politics in our science fiction or we don't want the SJWs taking over everything. And it's very much not the majority of people. But I wonder if just having kind of a toxic fan base in this genre that doesn't really exist in other genres just makes it just seem like it's a little bit more work to wade through sometimes. Like they're kind of ruining it for the rest of us. I don't know. Have you had that experience or, or what are your thoughts? Certainly with science fiction, more than any other genre I've come across, there has been more of a presence of, I would say like a toxic minority of fans. Mm -hmm. Obviously it's not the vast majority, but they're, very outspoken and it's usually against women or people of color or different sexualities something other than i would say like a white male fantasy character in Mm -hmm. your science fiction which leads to things like uh when ghostbusters was remade you know some people were fairly excited it was going to be an all-female cast and the backlash was immediate and incendiary. I have, it was insane reading any article and you go into the comment section and it was people just being upset because this wasn't their Ghostbusters. They didn't want this. They wanted Ghostbusters three with the original cast. They did not want a new Ghostbusters. And I think the crux of it was they didn't want a new Ghostbusters with an all female cast. So the movie itself, I never actually ended up seeing. I heard it was okay, um, but there was just so much backlash towards it at the at the front end that felt really unwarranted before any information of the movie had come out, reviews, the scripts, any even any of the casting. It was, it was just crazy. So it felt difficult for me even to go back and watch, like rewatch the first Ghostbusters which I'd seen as a child and I kind of had wanted to rewatch, but it felt, it felt odd going back to rewatch it. Just in the back of my mind, I was still thinking about these comments towards women and, and the new Ghostbusters coming out and things like that. Yeah. I've had that experience too, where you try to read about something or, or just follow the development of something. And it feels like people end up being obligated to cover all of the backlash. And you want to just enjoy the thing for what it is. But for some reason, it feels like people are touchier about science fiction going into the same kind of political or social realms that other genres can just do more comfortably. Yeah. And it's, it's yeah, I guess, especially sci-fi in general, you can never just enjoy it. 
you either have to love it or vehemently hate parts of it. But I think that that you have gotten me to think about something, which is maybe what I was thinking and couldn't quite articulate, is that with science fiction, people look at that as being an expression of their identity yes. in a way that with some genres, I don't feel like we get that. Where I can say that I like magical realism, but no one's going to associate that with some kind of an identity. And I feel like I like a lot of different genres. Like, I don't like any just one thing. Like, I like some science fiction. I like some magical realism. I like some kind of hard realism. I like poetry. I like drama. And I don't feel the need to be kind of too attached to any one of those or like it's too much of an expression of who I am. But for some reason with science fiction, it starts to feel like, oh, that's an expression of who you are, or at least other people are going to interpret it that way. Uh, which is why I feel sort of defensive about even starting a show off with science fiction, because I don't want people to be like, oh, well, it's a science fiction show. So why do you think it's science fiction in general and not, say, like fantasy, which has a lot of the same qualities to it? That's a good question. I wonder if for some people, science fiction isn't a certain escape for them. And maybe with genre writing in particular. And I think maybe this does happen a little bit with fantasy, but for people who view art as a place that they escape, when people want to make it more um, of an expression of the world we live in or have social commentary or dig into identity issues, you start getting rid of that escape. And it starts mm -hmm. being work that still just exists in the same real world as everything else. And for people who maybe feel uncomfortable with those issues or don't have the same kind of literacy with them, when you suddenly start taking something that was their escape or kind of a, a safe area for them to just feel very validated in, and then you start to make that medium more challenging for them, I think people get very defensive. And in other genres, there aren't people who have kind of staked it out as a safe zone for themselves in the same way. So you can travel kind of back and forth more freely from those genres. No, I think that's definitely an, uh, yeah, a good way of looking at it. And I definitely agree that people in sci-fi have kind of carved out a little space for themselves. Well, I feel like we've talked about maybe some of the issues that people have had with science fiction. So let's switch to the positives and talk about why we like it. Okay. Because I think science fiction can be a great place to explore existential ideas. It can be uh, kind of educational in a way, too. When people get the science really right, it's kind of exciting to watch how like once you know something really well, you know, you get dangerous enough to break the rules in creative ways and to read something by someone who really does grasp science really well enough that they can make something seem really convincing um, just by adjusting a few things that maybe can't happen in the real world. I think that's really impressive. And I think that can be really immersive for a reader. I would say uh, the first thing I thought of when you mentioned like a bending science just a little bit to create something would be Michael Crichton, who is mm -hmm. author of a lot of different uh, science fiction books and different series and things like that. But it's probably most well known for doing the Jurassic Park series, which is bending science just a little bit in just enough of a believable way that you absolutely believe that, yeah, maybe scientists could do that. Mm -hmm. And that's part of the thrill of reading it, right? Like, you get the sense of what would it be like if we had dinosaur parks? Like, actually, it would be kind of like this. 
it would probably be horrible and mm-hmm. result in a lot of deaths if any of those books or movies have taught me anything. Mm-hmm. Public service announcement. Don't start a dinosaur park. Please don't. And just if you have to, that. just talk to Jeff Goldblum first. Mm-hmm. He'll tell you not to do it. Although I think they are working on bringing back mammoths, aren't they? Is that still I did read that. Yeah. I, I think I read that like 15 years ago. So who knows where the progress there are on that? I know they there found be a park somewhere we don't even know about. Now that would be exciting. Maybe a little bit less exciting than dinosaurs because you just have mammoths. There's nothing else there. Like they should throw in a saber tooth or, you know, a woolly rhino, something else. I feel like that's where the slippery slope starts, though. Once you have the saber tooth, are we getting into like violent animals we're just not ready for? And then you know where the slippery slope ends is when they decide to bring back cavemen, the -hmm. people from that era. Then you get into the really uh, creating God scope of sci-fi. Some would argue that that's something that's going on nowadays with uh, cloning and cloning embryos and things like that, of creation of humans. Yeah, like being able to manipulate the human genome and that flying away. Yeah, it's crazy to think about it. It does feel like sci-fi to think about something that is an actual science that's happening right now. So since we've talked a bit about uh, maybe some sci-fi that's still good, but had a little bit more of a toxic fan base to it, uh, what are some other sci-fi that you enjoy? I also thought Annihilation was really good. We've talked about Annihilation. We have. Uh, I love Annihilation. That I I really liked. Yeah, that movie messed me up. (laughs) It was just great, but it really kind of just it it gets so weird by the end of the movie. It's it's wonderful. It is fun when you get to the end of something, and this doesn't really spoil anything. I don't think. Um, I guess if you want to know nothing about this movie. Maybe skip ahead a few minutes. But it's a movie where you get to the end and you're not totally sure what exactly happened. And you want to, like, go back and rewatch portions or look up things online to be like, did what happened match up with what I think happened? Or are there multiple interpretations of what that was? Yeah, I agree. There's definitely a few different ways you could see the ending going down. And I... You know, talking to a few friends that had seen the movie, we all had kind of a different theory about what had actually happened. So I thought it was a really, really well done movie, not only story-wise, but uh, uh, music-wise. The music was phenomenal throughout the movie and visual-wise as well. Mm-hmm. It's one of the few movies that I've seen um, whose screenplay got published and was sold in bookstores. I know it's based on a book, right? It is, yeah. It's based on a book series. But I was impressed to see that the screenplay itself got published and was being sold. You know what? It's also a movie that features female protagonists Mm -hmm. that didn't get bombarded with negative reviews. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I believe that movie was also one of Obama's favorite movies of last year. Really? Obama approved. So don't take our word for it. But absolutely do. Go watch the movie if you haven't seen it yet. I think it's still on Netflix. Go find Barack Obama and watch it with him. 
goals. Well, do you want to dig into exhalation now? Sure. Ted Chang is another author who I think does a really good job of being so well-informed about science that you read what he's writing and you're like, can that actually happen? I'm not actually sure. Which stories from Exhalation have you read so far? So I did read uh, Exhalation, What's Expected of Us, and The Great Silence. Is there a particular one of those you wanted to focus on? I would say let's push on the titular story in here, which would be Exhalation. So for anyone who doesn't want a spoiler on this, for the next few minutes, we will be talking about the story. It's only like 20 pages long or something. You could So you could probably, if you're interested, like literally pause this show. And then if you have the book, go and read it and then come back. But if you don't want a short story spoiled, you might want to skip ahead. Um, but for now, we're going to take a few minutes to talk about Exhalation. So what did you think of Exhalation? Um it, it takes a bit to get into the story, and, you know, you're not quite sure who you're following at first. It's like, okay, you know, is it humans? Is it androids? Is it robots? Is it a different alien species? Uh, yeah, like there's this world populated by these mechanical beings of some kind who survive off these metal lungs filled with air, and the air is, is piped in from somewhere underground, I believe. Yes. It's been about a month since I read this. So it's, yeah, it's they have somewhere. Like air reservoirs underground that they use. So they keep refilling their lungs every time they start running low on air, and that's how they survive. And so they kind of live indefinitely um, as long as they can keep filling up their metal lungs. Right. So a lot of what this story and the whole short story kind of series in general has to focus on is the process of breathing and air itself. And in fact, the very first sentence of the book is, or of this short story is, uh, it has long been since that air, which others called argon, is the source of life. But then you find out a little bit later into the story that uh, it is finite, and they have to come to grips with the fact that they are not actually immortal, that someday they will cease being able to breathe and therefore to function. Mm -hmm. The speaker decides to take apart his own brain, which is something they've never been able to do before. And he sees that they're, they're powered by the flow of air because their Mm -hmm. brains are these little like flecks of gold leaf that then, and then their thoughts are the result of, of those leaves getting blown around. And so since the pressure around them seems to be equalizing, Eventually, the airflow will not allow that continued kind of mental sustenance to to keep going. Like, that process will stop eventually. Right. And I think the the realization after that, the point where the author does take apart his brain and comes to this horrifying moment where he realizes that this is all going to end. And I thought that might be the end of the story, but it kind of continues on into the society's own interpretation of that and what should be done. Mm-hmm. I thought it was an interesting commentary on what it's like to live in a society where you know you have finite resources and where you know your death is imminent. And that's something that we all know. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't it's not a realization for us in quite the same way it is for the the creatures in this story. But it makes me think about all the things that are finite in much more of the short term too. Mm-hmm. Uh 
things like our natural resources or the rainforest or the coral reefs or just all the things around us that are slowly dying and slowly decaying. And and how do we process that? How do we live with that sense of loss on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, absolutely an allegory for figuring out the realization that natural resources here are finite. I think what's interesting is the first half of the story is really slow. Uh, people don't really do much. You do have the main character who decides to, you know, take apart his brain and look at that and study that. And then after that point where he's done that, it speeds up dramatically. And people who have been kind of complacent with what's going on and it seems like maybe science is kind of stagnated have jumped forward. Now you have, as soon as he takes apart his brain, more scientists are doing that and studying that. And now it's a push towards uh, trying to regain uh, the equilibrium of uh, the flow of air. So kind of the the last 10 pages are a rush of people now all of a sudden attempting to do things a bit too late. Yeah, their priorities as a civilization just change so much once they realize their time is limited and they need to actually work to find a, a solution to their own mortality, which there isn't one as far as we know. But just that sense of denial I thought was kind of interesting or that mm-hmm. sense of like desperation, like all the different things that they're trying now that don't quite work. And someone keeps thinking they found a solution, but then it's not quite there. So how do you feel about your own mortality? Well, um, (laughs) is it something you think about? uh, Sure. Of course. I think everybody thinks about it at some point in time. And I think when you, uh, you have somebody that you know, that's passed away or something like that, those events come to the forefront in your mind. And you can ruminate on them for quite a long time. Uh, but going around thinking about my own mortality every second of the day would be incredibly exhausting. Mm-hmm. So having kind of small moments of your life where you can really sit down and think about it and think what, about what that means and how to spend the rest of your life, uh, you know, the rest of what to do with the rest of the time you have left. That's important. But thinking about it all the time would, uh, yeah, that would be a lot. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right. Well, uh, I do have the book in front of me. You do not. Uh, thank you again for lending it to me. So I do have the added bonus of having passages I can read. Okay. Yeah. Read us a good passage from Exhalation. Okay. So this is actually towards the very end of the book. Uh, if you're still listening and you really don't want this to be spoiled, absolutely skip this part. <laughs> okay. I wish you well, Explorer, but I wonder, does the same fate that befell me await you? I can only imagine that it must. That the tendency towards equilibrium is not a trait peculiar to our universe, but inherent in all universes. Perhaps that is just a limitation of my thinking, and you people have discovered a source of pressure that is truly eternal. But my speculations are fanciful enough already. I will assume that one day your thoughts, too, will cease, although I cannot fathom how far in the future that might be. Your lives will end just as ours did, just as everyone's must. No matter how long it takes, eventually equilibrium will be reached. I hope you're not saddened by that awareness. I hope that your expedition was more than a search for other universes to use as reservoirs. I hope that you're motivated by a desire for knowledge 
a yearning to see what can arise from a universe's exhalation. Because even if a universe's lifespan is calculable, the variety of life that is generated within it is not. The buildings we have erected, the art and music and verse we have composed, the very lives we've led, none of them could have been predicted because none of them was inevitable. Our universe might have slid into equilibrium, emitting nothing more than a quiet hiss. The fact that it spawns such plentitude is a miracle, one that is matched only by your universe giving rise to you. So I thought that one, especially now that we're talking questions about uh, our mortality and, and things that you would do in your life if you're thinking about it, it's going to end. But here are the things that are important, things you're doing right now, the music you're creating or listening to, the art that you're doing, the books that you're writing, the relationships that you've had, the knowledge you've gained, the places that you've gone. That is what is really important. Mm -hmm. That's what you should be doing. Yeah, the, the finitude of everything doesn't make it less beautiful. Mm. Or it doesn't mean that it is missing something. I mean, in some cases, things are being destroyed in ways they shouldn't be. When we think about the environment or when we think about certain resources, um, right. things like global warming, there are changes going on that are destructive that, that should be stoppable um, if we wanted to stop them. But when we think about just the natural impermanence of things, that's not a flaw. That's just part of how things are. Yeah, rather than focusing so much on immortality and, and attaining that, just kind of enjoying where you're at right now, mm -hmm. which I'm sure, you know, generations from now when immortality has been achieved, you know, anybody who comes back and listens to this podcast is just going to be laughing. But mm -hmm. for right now, <laughs> viewers in the current day. They'll wake us up from our cryogenic chambers and they're like, I disagree with that podcast. <laughs> yeah, it all just comes full circle. Now it's just angry internet people have to wake us up to uh, yell at us about how wrong we were about our podcast. Thank you for joining us for this first episode of The Plot. This episode featured Mia McCullough and Elizabeth Laidlaw, and you can learn more about their web series, The Haven, at www.thehavenweb.com. For more on Mia's work, you can visit miamacullah.com, and you can see Elizabeth on the recent CBS drama, The Red Line. Exhalation by Ted Chang is available wherever books are sold. The Plot is a production for me, Sean Douglas. Lauren McCrimmon was an associate producer on this episode, and additional post-production work was provided by Brooke Pursoon. If you enjoyed this show, please subscribe on whatever podcast service you listen through, and consider sharing the episode with others. We also encourage you to reach out to us on social media. You can find me on Twitter at underscore Sean Douglas underscore and this show at The Plot Podcast. Thanks again to all my guests today, and we'll be back again in two weeks with another episode of The Plot. <laughs>